to imagine all life as you know it stopping instantaneously and every molecule in your body exploding at the speed of light. Total Protonic Reversal. Protonic Reversal. Protonic Reversal. With your host, Conan Neutron. Broadcasting from a secret underground lair in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. A gigantic middle finger to everything that is rotten about music, rock and roll, and corporate power. The thing is, though... If you don't laugh, you're going to go on a killing spree with sharp and nails. Confidence of a hero or a fool, I wasn't exactly certain which. Could not be more professional. That's like a science thing, right? Indeed, indeed, indeed it is. It is a science thing. It is a science place. It's a scientific fact that we are all up in your face. It is time once again for the one, the only, Protonic Reversal. Welcome to it, welcome to it, welcome to it. Getting a little chilly out there over here. But uh, yeah, here we are. Another fantastic uh, November episode. Uh, last one before I'm out for some West Coast tour dates, ironically, because my guest tonight is from the West Coast and lives there as well. Uh, Paul Rossler. So, so so excited to talk to him. Let me do this real real quick. Welcome to Kona Neutron's Protonic Reversal. I'm your host, Kona Neutron. I am a rock and roll lifer who has toured and recorded for over 22 years. Most known for the band, Kona Neutron, The Secret Friends. Music is a huge part of my life, and I use the format of this long-running podcast to talk about music with musicians whose work I enjoy and respect. Folks that may or may not be household names would do something very special. This is episode 312. If this is your first time listening to the show, all the archives are at protonicreversal.com and are always free, no ads, no sponsors, no kidding. If you would like to support the show, though, and get episodes sooner, you can give $1 a month to patreon.com slash Reversal. If you like the show, or even just a single episode, please feel free to share it along, like, subscribe, or post a review. All that helps people find the show. It's just a darn nice thing to do. So there you go. Uh, it's not very often that uh, I get to have someone uh, who's been this deep in it for this long doing awesome stuff. Uh, of course, I... You may know him from The Screamers. You may know him from his amazing solo work, uh, production work, 45 Grade, playing with Mike Watt. Uh, I could I could sit there and rattle off his entire discography, but at some point we actually want to start talking, so I'm probably not going to do that. Uh, Paul Russell, welcome to the show, man. Well, thanks for a great, thanks for a nice introduction. 312. That's, that's lot, amazing. Right? <laughs> Every time I look at that, I was like, God, that's a lot of episodes of this show. <laughs> that's impressive. What do you do it once a week? Uh, yeah, I mean, during, during peak, something like that, peak COVID, I did more, uh, meaning like spring, spring 2020, I kind of stepped up for a bit at one point, it was even five a week, but yeah, it basically aggregate total is about once a week. Yeah. Especially. Oh, so you, you got everybody through COVID with your show, got everybody, it's, kept everyone involved. The audience increased by about a thousand percent and I'm not even exaggerating, which is great because wow, I literally had no form of income or... <laughs> <laughs> hope or <laughs> any kind of anything at the time so it was like a life raft for me to to be floating on in the middle of the in the middle of the ocean basically i'm sure for other people as well 
Uh, Paul, it's so good to have you, man. I'm I'm a huge, such a, so I know you mostly from Screamers, which uh, credit where credit's due. I know about Screamers because of Jackrabbit and the Big Takeover, uh, and which, having come from a world of music myself that includes not just like guitar-driven punk rock, but uh, bands like Babyland and things like that that were uh, punk rock in in feel. Uh, How did the Screamers originally come together? Well, I get I get so much mileage out of the Screamers, but it's really... <laughs> I know you've done like a re- million things, but it's so interesting it, too. It, no, no, it's really <laughs> important for me because I'm going to start... If I don't explain this, I'm going to start sounding incredibly conceited. The Screamers were already a, a, the biggest band in L.A. when I joined them. Right. So they had a, they had another keyboard player named David Brown who was really instrumental to their sound. And then they had a temporary guy named Jeff McGregor and they had the word out that they were looking for the the new screamer and i got the job so first of all you know i was on probation for 6 months and uh, <laughs> you know but i had been i'd been classically trained i'd been playing for a long time so i had the, yeah. the chops and everything and they explained you know so it was a real learning experience for me so i get a lot of the i get a lot of credit now and very little blame and uh but I mean, I was able to step into it and, um, you know, but I can't take credit for. So the reason I said I was going to sound I might sound conceited is it's it's the most amazing band I've ever, live band for sure I've ever played in. Yeah. And um, every show I would just stand on stage looking around kind of in awe of what I was a part of. And um, it's uh, because there's not it would have been impossible to capture that um, on recording. Um, there are no real, real studio recordings of it. And so you, you know, and the, the people who actually stood before the screamers are dying off at this point, but <laughs> as an, as an experience standing before that band was, um, it was really unique and you really felt like you were seeing the future, you know, I think. Well, and that's the thing. And of course I, I was not, you know, I was very busy being a small baby at the time, but, uh, <laughs> I, Tomato to Plenty, especially being like such a, such a compelling front person, as well, but also just the presentation of everything and and having it have that. Well, I suppose there's like suicide, right? And and like a couple other bands like kind of operating similar may, may lose, but I mean, yeah, the the live shows were legendary. But Screamers didn't record. That was like the biggest thing of like why they were lost from history for a long time is because Screamers didn't record. And I've been trying to make up for that ever since. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, so you were playing. You were playing instruments before joining that band. Had you already been playing in bands at that point? Yeah, I was a, a piano player, and I took lessons for uh, ten years. And I, um, I think when I when I joined the Screamers, I was a piano major at Cal State Northridge. So I was really I was in high school. I was the nerd locked in the band room, <laughs> practicing uh, for hours and hours and hours. I wanted to be like. Uh, 
Rick Wakeman and Keith Emerson and Rick Frank Wakeman. Zappa. What, what was uh, was the cape implied, or was the cape actually? Uh... <laughs> well, I, I couldn't afford a. Cape. Well, I might have had a cape actually. Um, yeah, I wrote a forty-seven minute prog song when I was sixteen, and I was really all in. Yeah. And, um, you know, then taste kind of changed abruptly. In fact, you know, in 1976, um, I got just rock music just seemed so bad. And even all my favorite bands at the time had put out bad records. You know, I was really into yeah. Yes, Yes and ELP and and Jethro Tull and uh, the Beatles and the Stones. And all those bands had just by 76 had gotten bad, which was I mean, like cocaine had done its it's done its work. <laughs> Right. or whatever it was. And I went off and I went to study classical music. You know, I, I just thought I was going to, I gave up on rock music and I went and saw a show with the germs and the deadbeats, nice. you know, in 1977, summer of 77. And it was so incredible. And my focus shifted from these stadiums um, just to the local clubs where this amazing stuff was happening all over, you know, the Western world. So at that time, yeah, and so were you finding things like in classical music and stuff that at the time that like just you weren't hearing in in rock music, but then this this kind of reignited the fire? Is it more like is that safe to say or? I, I you know it's not that I had such a great love of classical music. I loved playing it, um, but I wasn't really a natural to classical music, and I wasn't a natural to jazz. I really was a prog rocker, so I was kind of in a dead end. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, and I don't mind saying that. I was sixteen. You know, it'd be, you'd be amazed how many other of us early punks were into that. Um, I know Keith Morris and Jack Grisham. I was going to say uh, Keith. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a lot of, a lot of us were into that. And in a way, prog, uh, in a way, punk rock was kind of a logical extension of it as far as just yeah. uh, not trotting out the same old tired blues riffs and three chord progressions and looking, looking for something new and, and different, you know, being musically and adventurous and pushing it forward a little bit. Yeah. yeah and the dead, the dead beats. So a lot of people don't know about was really one of those bands. that was astonishing. They had uh, odd meters and they seem almost like a beef heart, um, uh, Zappa influence, but, but unquestionably punk rock, you know? So right. that let me know that there was a place were so forward looking they didn't really even have to play a song you know it was like yeah. what was going on in between the feedback and the and the bathrooms being trashed and the <laughs> microphones right. you know the beers the beers being drank all that stuff was uh part of the show it was this theatrical thing that was really really funny and really like if they never would have gotten around to a song the the it was, still would have been a great show, right? And so that <laughs> just a spectacle um, of the whole thing, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was fantastic. And you know, the Pistols came out. We went up to Winterland, and that was kind of their dying breath. But you know, John Lydon, the spirit of him, the way he turned around and started Public Image right away, yeah, was already was already alive in the Pistols. I think you know they were kind of a standard rock and roll band in a way, but he. Um, his vision already, I think, was set on just tearing tearing down things and building new ones. So well, and and the R.I.P. to Keith. And I was going to say the, the, the screamer. Yeah. The screamers were just one of the greatest. At like, what can we do with these instruments that's never been done? And uh, right. we take this Fender Rhodes and put it through a big muff and and use that Arp Odyssey and don't have any guitars and basses and uh, you know something emerged out of uh, something that they had conceived that was very powerful. 
Yeah, and, and well, and it's something that was very unique too. Even even in a scene full of bands that were doing their own thing. Again, and something I, I bring up when I have people from that world a lot too is that it, you know, kind of seems like. If you sounded like someone else, people would like kind of goof on you, like oh whatever, like you know, like <laughs> which nowadays it's just like oh people, you're just doing a, you're just doing a thing, you're doing a birthday party thing, you're doing a whatever this thing, whatever, okay, fine, <laughs> and uh, there certainly was nobody that sounded like Screamers at the time. It's funny, I was thinking, I think the Screamers and Germs both set out to be like pop bands, and <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, their version of it, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And they put it all together and they went, uh oh, uh, we aren't, we never will be, you know. This is actually we... something else entirely. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever it is. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, I, I mean, did, but did you feel, I mean, the, but the songs are like catchy and hooky, but how did it feel like playing, playing the shows with that band though? Like with, with playing the, those, those shows with the Screamers? Well, whenever, whenever you're on stage, whenever I'm on stage, there's a certain, uh, focus on you know accuracy and um, the musical side of it. Yeah. So um, you know, I was actually I was kind of the guitar player and bass player, in the sense that my left hand was the bass and my right hand was the guitar, and then the other keyboard player was doing all these sort of sounds and textures. So I kind of ha- had my hands full. Right. Um, and it, and it was fast sometimes. So I was even though I was I had some chops. I've been playing hard music. Um, so a lot of that was focused on, you know, accuracy and, and also I sort of jumped in, they were already playing, we're already playing packed, sold out big shows and I was 18 years old. So, uh, what did it feel like? Um, very focused, very concentrating, very not wanting to screw it up. And, um, and then gradually, um, the power, the power of the, the synergy of what had been created sort of would carry us. You know, I did a party about two weeks ago. It was KK's 70th birthday who, uh, party, who is the drummer from the Screamers. And um, we did a little little show in his in his basement, and we did, um, for the party, and we did a lot of covers, and it was just fun. But at one point, they they wanted us to do Punisher Be Damned, one of the Screamers yeah, songs. Yeah, yeah, great, great song. Yeah. With uh, just the two of us, and then a guy was singing. And it's so funny. You start playing those songs and it's instant it's the easiest gig ever (laughs) you know you start playing them you start the beat you start the start the song and the whole audience is just in the in the palm of your hands and i i don't think i've ever had that experience before since i've always felt like i had to work for it you know but uh something about and maybe it's the passage of time and people's reverence for the for for what it was accomplished in the past but uh it's a funny feeling. It's um, it's sort of e- in a way. It's kind of easy, you know. You just give, yeah. you just start the song, and you got them. But it's also, I mean, I think of bands like uh, that Detroit band Death, right? That were like com- basically completely unknown in their time until their those recordings emerge, and then there's a documentary and, and and whatnot, and all these people like discovered, oh, here's this great band that you know uh, was was around that nobody had any idea, and they and they touched a whole audience of people that weren't alive when they were around. I mean, I think that there's nothing, there, there's something kind of beautiful about that. And, and that's kind of like, I think the, I don't know, the good part of the internet, if you will, and social media and whatnot is having that, having that kind of connection and avenues of discovery. Yeah. It's a really different world. And um, there's, 
there's so much music. I mean, I couldn't keep up with the music then because I was always so intense. Yeah. I was so in, I mean, I was playing in two or three or four bands at a time. And so I was so intent on learning and playing shows and I missed so much stuff. I really come to some come to terms with it just in the last few months about I always thought I was sort of some kind of expert. And I realized there's a different kind of expert, the kind of experts like someone like a Henry Rollins, who just is a student of all the music that's made, which I am not. And when you say death, you could say almost any band you've ever listened to. And I would probably say, yeah, I've heard of them. I've never actually listened to them. It's a it's a weird thing to confess. <laughs> sure, especially for someone who records music, too. <laughs> and it's, it's hard to go backwards, too, because if you didn't, some of this stuff, if you weren't exposed to it when you're 16 or 17 or 18 or early, it's it's hard to go back and listen to the misfits now and go, oh, I get it, you know, or or the Ramones. It's and so I'm a huge fan of a lot of stuff that I was involved with or that I was sure, you know, and it's it's you know, like 45 Grave. It's I don't 45 Grave is like the screamers, man. I was I joined them. They needed a keyboard player. They didn't even really need me, but I play with them for, I happened to play with them when they were doing some of their big recordings and I'm really proud of what I did. But, um, you know, I know at the time Christian death was going to at the same time. And I yeah. completely missed Christian death because I was all just 45 grave all day long, you know? So just, just head down it, and doing the work and, and a little bit. Yeah. And so I'm like, I become a little humbled. Someone was talking about Lemmy and I was like, I don't, actually know much about motorhead to be honest with you you know and oh, wow. it kind of makes sense because like i just told you what an effete classical prog rock <laughs> you know yeah yeah right like you, you tales from the topographic straight... oceans and over the top are definitely very different uh <laughs> yeah you hit me with straight ahead rock and roll and my friend was trying my friend was trying to turn me on to Lemmy and he was playing all this stuff and my wife made a video of my face and I was sitting there and my friend loved Lemmy and I was trying to be I love this guy I'm trying to be really polite but the look at my face was so puzzled right yeah well and there's oh some things God. that if you don't have that context that it doesn't necessarily work like I mean I could I'm not I'm certainly not going to name names but there's a few bands I can think of uh, that you know, like whatever I personally toured with, they were like the show was amazing, and, and then you listen back to the records and it's like, ah, eh, well, all right, that's 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 fine. happened to me recently too. <laughs> like like um, Nick Cave, all those years, people would turn me on to Nick Cave, and I'd be like, it seems like it should be good, but I don't quite get it. I don't quite yeah. get it. It's almost it seems right up my alley, but nah. And then I saw him live, and I was like, oh, and it was like one of the it, best shows it, I've it, ever it, seen. It connects. So. <laughs> it connects. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that's uh that's there, there's something to be said for that too and as well as, you know, there's almost like the world of making records and the world of playing live. And you know, it's not the same thing, but it's yep. it's uh it, it's some, they're both sets of skills. Some bands can do them both. And uh, I like I like to say it's only a coincidence that some people play live and make records. Pure coincidence. <laughs> So I guess that's a good pivot point as any to talk about how did you get into recording and how did you get into production and stuff like that? Oh, way back then there were these things called four tracks <laughs> and my four track tape recorders. They only, you only could do four things at a time on them, but you could overdub and stuff. And so from the time I was 18, anytime I could borrow, beg or steal a four track, not steal, I never stole one, but anytime <laughs> I could get one set up, I was making these, um, I guess, demos and, um, and uh, I just had to, 
a friend of mine, uh, well, Pat Smear, who, who everybody, I guess, knows who Pat Smear is, called me the other day and he goes, you know those old four tracks that we made? Do you still have those? So the last two or three days, I was just in hell going through thousands of cassettes and reel-to-reel tapes trying to find the old stuff that we recorded way back then. So I was I was doing that starting in 78 and 79 and um and then um you know in the eight, in the 90s I was lucky I got a series of eight tracks four in a row you know four different eight tracks and I would play them until they would either take them back or they'd break and so I was just eight track eight track all night long and then finally and I feel like my whole goal in life since I was 16 was to weasel my way into the situation I am in now, whereas I have my own recording studio. (laughs) (laughs) All I ever wanted. Well, and it's, uh, and so then that's Kitten Robot, right? And that's the Kitten Robot empire empire started with the studio first, correct? Which is where, where we are right now. now. Sitting sitting in the middle of it right now. Yeah. Uh, and Empire. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, you got the label too, you know. So it's, yeah. it's we call it yeah. an empire. Doesn't have to be. You don't have to get too specific. <laughs> yeah. That sounds good. <laughs> and how? What's what's? I mean, so okay. So then, what what are the like when you're thinking about making records? When you think about like recording records again, start the fortune. I have one in the other room, by the way. So I the power source has been fried on it for maybe 25 years, but like, <laughs> but I still have can't let it go. <laughs> can't throw them away I, I, I won't i won't get rid of it it's like no 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 keep that <laughs> totally no reason i'm probably not going to record on it again but i'm not going to get rid of it no way but what about accessing all those old recordings that's what that's that is one very good reason to keep it around yeah exactly it is it's just a power supply uh, well, so do you think that I know what you think I would have picked up in the last two decades? But uh, you know, whatever. Uh, the day the day you get rid of that machine will be the day someone calls you up and says, "Hey, do- you got those old? <laughs> you got those so old tapes don't do from? It. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I won't. I definitely not." Uh, so when when you're thinking about record making, like making records, what kind of stuff were you originally thinking of? Because you, you mentioned like you're coming from the you know like. Tales of the Topographic Oceans, fragile, kind of like uh, like that prog world, right? Uh, but then you're also seeing this incredibly intense uh, live presentation of the of these songs, uh, of which I feel like it's it's to establish a baseline for folks that are the younger listeners here. Home recording is pretty easy now, uh, and everybody can do it just on their on your phone or whatever, right? But like it it, it was kind of a alchemy and a dark art <laughs> for for a lot of people for a, a long time, and just finding an engineer that w- that wasn't like heavily ponytailed. I'm gonna do a terrible job because I don't like the music. Kind of thing was kind of a challenge. The screamers were lucky. They Gaza X, who was pretty darn good at it, and he recorded some really good demos. Which then the uh, keyboard player made him erase, so that the only demos are, have, that people have heard have come off of cassettes. But I didn't get good at it, man. I was I was always so focused on the composition that. Um, the recordings I made weren't weren't great. I didn't. I'm a slow learner on some of this stuff, um, and uh, it wasn't until I sat in a real recording studio, starting in around, starting around. I started having a lot of access to it around 2000, and I just sat in there and Geza. It was Geza and Josie Cotton's um, studio in Malibu, uh, Satellite Park, and they kind of threw me in there, and I gradually, you know. Um, learn my ears just started like figuring stuff out very slowly um as far as what kind of records 
Um, you know, since I'm working in a studio, a lot of it is, it is just people who come in and, um, and, uh, it's all over the map. And, um, and I've found people are always asking me, what about working on stuff you don't like? And, um, it's not like that at all. It's about, it's about when you make music with people, it's this very intimate thing and whatever people's tastes are, their heart has gone into it with just, and their soul. Right. And if, if you are open and present for the experience and if you bond with the people, it becomes like, I kind of joined the band for a couple days sure. while we're doing this stuff. Yeah, yeah. And my job is to, my job is to make it to fulfill their vision as, um, as like beyond their dreams, you know, sometimes with my own ideas, but sometimes just, capturing their ideas in a setting that and making it work and that is a that is an awesome job or and responsibility and and i think it's um broadened me a whole bunch right so if somebody had come you know people it's rare that um by the end of it that i haven't uh seen what they were going for and understood their influences and been able to make it um into something that I at least have come to appreciate as well as them, you know? So uh, how lucky am I to be able to do that? Well, and yeah, you, so it probably is going to make you a lot less judgmental too, because yeah, if you're someone's pouring their heart and soul into something, you want to see them succeed and you want to try to find what is exciting them about it as well uh, to do your job. It, I think <laughs> it's, I think it's brought to me a lot in a way it's made me more judgmental because my job is all day long, like, okay, what's wrong with it and how can I make it better? And now when I listen to all these people that everybody else loves, I think the same thing. <laughs> I've kind of been, I've kind of been into this thing about stripping away mystique because I make these records in here and I'm like, this is as good, you know, in some ways this is as good as their influences and in some ways better. Now, granted, there's really something to be said for being the first to do it and to invent it. But, um, uh, and, and the idea of stripping away mystique, I've been, now that's not right. It's something I've been experimenting with to try to like, well, what if you listen to a Beatles record with no, with none of the, um, aura about it yeah. or listen to the sex pistols or public, get rid of the aura. Now, the thing is truthfully, aura is possibly more important than anything. So the vibe, you know, the feel uh, looking the feel. at, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So looking at Lemmy objectively, and stripping away his aura, I mean, it's an interesting thought experiment, but it's not, you know, it's something I've been playing with, but um, not necessarily that great an idea. <laughs> well, and, so, and, and there's a, uh, there's a, talking about making records, there's a question from uh, Sean Garrison uh, from King Horse and uh, Maurice uh, in the in the chat about who insisted the Screamers not release a vinyl record. I mean, was did it just not seem like a priority at the time? You mentioned you're making up for it <laughs> ever since, but was it just not a priority? Well, so, or was there like what? Well, was in nine in nineteen seventy eight, the airways were so dominated by the Eagles and disco, and that's what it had to sound like. And Tomato, there was nobody to, that sounded even remotely. And I think the Screamers kind of rightfully, in a way, recognized that. Um, that if anything, it, it could work against them. And um, they were not going to be able to... Radio truly controlled the the music industry. Right. So what you had was um, you had uh, touring and you had radio. And that was <clears throat> that was how it worked. 
Um, and then there were some TV shows like uh, Ed Sullivan and Johnny Carson you could <laughs> right. go on, and they would have never booked the Screamers. So the Screamers, I think, rightfully thought, we want to... Um, and they 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 were successfully they brought in investors and they created a soundstage and a, a music studio and they started working on a movie, <laughs> and they started wanting to make rock videos before there was an MTV. All of that I think was really visionary and brilliant. Um, I think that you know so many things can go wrong when you're making a movie or when you're making videos. It, it's you know casting and and uh, editing and sound. There's so many things that can go wrong. And directing. And I think that everything went right, except I think that the person that they partnered with, um, who ha they had every reason to believe in this guy. He had been working with Malcolm McLaren on um, on uh, the Who Killed Bambi movie. So oh, right, right. That post. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, I know it well. You know, so they had every reason to think this could work. But I think that that collaboration, after every move they had made, had been golden and, and just like... Uh, magical that collaboration was not a fruitful collaboration and over the course of that collaboration you know they got investors they started working on a movie that director <coughs> and they would they you know i don't think they wanted to be a rock band really they really wanted to m morph and mutate into a a, a studio you know yeah. which i think is hats off to them like it's hard to imagine a band that good not wanting to keep doing it I'll tell you, man, they never did the same show twice. It was like right. always, it was always like right around the time, like we were packing places and we were really starting just playing for thousands of people. They introduced violins and they introduced yeah. backing tracks and they introduced another, a theatrical performance that I thought was the beginning of the erosion of the, of what I thought was the best of the band. But the, the secondary thing that was the best of the band was their, visionary ambition and refusal to take the easy way out the easy road and you know sometimes when you're that fierce in your commitment to um you can finally hit the wall and make a wrong move so that's as an 18 year old watching it happened that that's that's my take on it well I, you know, a couple of things so you mentioned theatrical i mean i think you got time you got Tomato to Plenty involved. It's going to be a bit theatrical, <laughs> I think, to be to be sure, right? Uh, yeah, but there there was a minimalist theatricality that didn't require Broadway type of. Right, when you right. started mm. when you started bringing in this Broadway vibe, it it there was some of their worst instincts in the Screamers was their tendency towards camp. I thought, right. and my <laughs> I was more towards the ferocious power of that they that they would generate and i was always pushing that way and the way i played yeah. and um if i was creating a set list i wanted that sort of aggression but they they had the streak in them wanting to do i'm going steady with twiggy right. and when they when they hooked up with a director <laughs> that indulged that sort of stuff it kind yeah, of lost yeah. it for me well and it's 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 wild too that uh <laughs> For the longest time, the only real documentation of the band was that it was a Target video, right? It was, it was that one that one concert from um, what was it, like '78 or something, right? That was, that was, that was yeah, which was was which for which for me and was my favorite my favorite era, really. Your favorite, you yeah. Know? And did I mean the idea of kind of doing it a different way? Certainly, like I think the ethos is um, uh, holds true throughout the whole band. Was it there any? 
like were the residents in the picture at all as far as like thinking about ways the bands have done it in an interesting manner or like was there any I guess I should say were there any other bands or acts at the time that were looked upon as like fellow travelers or was it just screamers land all the time <laughs> no it was really like us against the world and the screamers didn't want to be associated with anyone and that's why they didn't yeah. do decline of western civilization they didn't want to be associated with anyone their influences were business management books and <laughs> French <laughs> French philosophy <Right>. definitely <laughs> you know so well, uh, what was that? Yeah. That uh, theater, theater of the spectacle of uh, who? who Arto, uh, yeah, yeah, Arto, yeah, exactly. Arto. Yeah, yeah stuff like that. Um, I, being a kid, was just—I've been influenced by classical music. I was just starting to learn about um, Jimi Hendrix and Bob Dylan, yeah. and um, and part of me um, um, was, um, you know, part of my um, punk attitude was, uh, hey, um, you know what is what is with this bob dylan guy i was exploring stuff that i was finding really good stuff that had come before and um and uh but maybe part of that is that i really did have part of me rooted in the in the previous generation you know so um uh, did you, you know, think it took me oh, it ahead. took me like eight years to appreciate the cure you know <laughs> <laughs> and, and then and then when, uh, okay. you know, when Bright Eyes and Elliot Smith came along, boom, I was like singer songwriters. I, you know, so um, uh, it, it's just so weird. The stuff that, that will hit you and then the stuff that'll go in one. And that I recorded a band called Prissy Whip that everybody should look up yeah, and listen to. Prissy Whip is great, man. That's a great band. Yeah. You know, and I, I saw them live and I was like amazed, but before I recorded them, but I'll tell you. I probably couldn't have truly become the Prissy Whip fan I am without sitting in the room and being a part of the process, you know? And and yeah. same with Chaton de Mon Quartet, which I did for a while, which is a band with Chaton and Rick Agnew and Deb Venom, which was actually, we did a Screamers cover. There was something Screamerish and punk techno about it. That, And, you know, if I would have just walked into that club, into a club somewhere and seen us, I don't know. If I would have got it, man, I'm slow and I have a lot of stuff in, <laughs> I gotta, I gotta get in there and get involved yeah. sometimes, you know, to really, to really, um, I, I think uh, I was, I was working with an artist named Mark Curry, who was a singer songwriter who got a deal on Virgin. And that was really got me into the singer songwriter thing. Like, dude, this guy just has an acoustic guitar and it's all he needs. You know, yeah. that's yeah. that. That is all he needs. Like you want to talk about stripped down and getting direct. Um, so I really like lyrics, you know, and stuff like that. So uh, did you, uh, what era of Prissy Whip, was that with, the, with Michael singing or was that, uh, um, was that later on with the. <coughs> it was with Heather. It with was Heather. with Heather okay. actually. I can remember her name. <laughs> who had, Sorry. <laughs> I had recorded, I had recorded her band Egrets on Ergot. Ah. And then, um, uh, which was a weird experience. Like for six hours, I was in the studio with them going, man, I just can't make these, I just can't make this work. It's like, it's kind of tribal drums. Who's, you know, nobody can play very well. And the guy's screaming and I don't get it. This guitar player, she doesn't know, a, she doesn't know a chord from a note. I mean, and then six hours into it, I just went, 
this is perfect. You know, <laughs> it, all, it all connected. Yeah. <laughs> this band's incredible. I don't, you know, so that was a weird experience. Uh, and then after that, I, I worked with her on a solo record um, that eventually came out under the name Crow Jane. Um, oh, right. I forgot about that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Which uh, was, we worked on that for years and, and I didn't think it was ever going to come out or we just band camp it or something. And then Kitten Robot started and it was going to be just a label for Josie stuff. And then we kind of, cause Josie got, she, Josie Cotton got ownership of her original recordings from the eighties. And so we wanted to reissue that stuff. And then we thought, well, that seems kind of a little like weird just to have her on this label. Nobody else is Paul, you got anybody you've recorded in there that might be good. So I, I sent him the, the Heather record, which I was so close to my heart, but I thought might be a little bit too avant-garde for the label. I didn't, but they liked it and they put it out and we got, we got really good response from that record. Uh, another, another record you put out was, was a uh, Kira's record who uh, has also been on the show. The great Kira Russell, your sister. Also, also I've been working with her, especially, I mean, always through our whole life, but making these recordings since, since the nineties, um, and uh, and I asked her once, well, do you ever want to put it out? I feel like a lot of people would be interested in this stuff. And she looked at me with this like angry look and said, why would I want to do that? And I was like, whoa, <laughs> like, I mean, just like, wow. How Kira so of I, her. I, yeah. So Kira, like, <laughs> damn. So um, I tried again when we had the label. I go, you know, uh, we have this label now and we could do And she could. I, there's a lot of labels that would put her stuff out. Sure, you know? of course. Yeah. But she had a vision around like of the, you know, dozens and dozens of songs that we've recorded. She had a vision of 10 or 12 that fit together in one story and she was willing to to do that. So and then we've done a couple shows, too, which is uh, I've seen that on just, the Internet. Yeah, <laughs> just about. Done. So I, you know, the hardest music ever, because, um, you know, she writes all her songs with two bass lines, interlocking, very ornate difficult you know angular bass lines kind of like dose her band with mike yeah 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 very interlocking that's all it's all interlocking on that band yeah and and, and i thought well i'll just play piano you know and and uh how hard can it be and then i realized fuck you know i've got to learn these bass i've got to learn what she did exactly (laughs) right or it's not i'm copping out you know i'm i'm like taking the easy way out and so I had to like learn that shit and right. So the, I don't think I'll ever do a show with her without pieces of paper telling me what's going like on. Like notes and all that. Yeah. It's just <laughs> still, but on the other hand, I'm so glad I did that because when I do that, um, uh, it's really, you know, I'm playing the low notes on the piano. It, yeah. It's like those, but it's a, it is different. And we have full drummer really hitting and it's a really special, unique, unique thing so i love that um i love doing that and then you know jeton de mon quartet is was you know completely opposite i almost don't think i ever had a rehearsal with them you know they asked me to jump up on stage with them one day and i was like i was like i don't know your songs and i don't have time i don't have time to rehearse and they said don't worry it's free form and you're going to be able to do it and i was like okay and and the first time i did it with them it was like it was a little bit like that feeling of of the screamers and a few bands I've played in Nina Hagen when Nina Hagen opens her mouth when she's in full voice and just goes, Ho yeah. and like the Does hair that Nina the Hagen thing. Yeah. <laughs> just like the, the walls sweat. Like 
if you stand in front of bad brains in 1980, you know, 1979, you're just like, oh my God, like the world is coming to an end, you know? Do you remember so Max I, L? They had that, the guy in the chair with the yeah, hair that, going back. Exactly. Like that's, <laughs> so like that, that, that happened with Chaton and Rick. And then eventually we weren't just doing freeform stuff, but I was always given a lot of freedom to just, uh, to really like play like classical music or whatever behind, you know, Rick Agnew's doing Rick Agnew. And so, um, and eventually we did an album called Substrata Strip that I think is, I'm really, you know, as far as in the studio where this crazy thing that happened live, there's, there's a mutated version of it that happened in the studio that stands on its own. It doesn't necessarily show you what happened live, but it, it's, you know, if studio magic is just a whole other animal, you know. Absolutely. So, so there's a few there's a few things I definitely want to get to with that. Uh, before before that, Nick Sakes, Dazzling Kilman, uh, former guest of the show, very recent former guest of the show, mentioned this is a comment. Uh, I'll put this up here. I don't have questions for Paul, but years ago I got DC three a place to crash after their show in St. Louis. Ah, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Nick. I got drunk and woke up to Paul playing a beautiful piece from West Side Story. <laughs> <laughs> on a piece in, in on a piano in this basement, which is that's like West great. Side Story. Maybe I don't know if I know anything for West Side Story, but it could have could have could have could have been a, a, a sound like situation. But uh, yeah, yeah, uh, and that that's that's fantastic. So, which brings up a great point: the DC three. So, Des from Black Flag, uh, Kira was playing with with Des and left to join Black Flag, and then you jumped in and uh, joined DC three, right? That, am I getting the, doing, the chronology of that correctly? Yeah, doing they actually. I don't think they played any shows. They just had a couple of rehearsals, and I was um, I did keyboard bass for the first album, which was uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I could do it better now. I might be able to do it better now. At the time, I was like winging it um, because you know he was doing a sort of a punk Cockwin thing that would have benefited from nice real bass, but yeah. Um, but it was also, again, it was a unique thing and it was kind of cool. And then eventually we got a bass player and I switched over to more, more, um, you know, traditional keys. Do you find that doing like the, 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 that bass keyboard stuff again, cause you mentioned earlier about doing like, you know, again, being the bassist and the guitar player. And for those that are only listening, I have both hands up to show that there's different parts of the keyboard that, that you're playing. Did you find it more limited or, uh, did you find it? did you find that kind of like, Oh, that's going to be kind of freeing in a way that you're only thinking about like that lower register. It was just super challenging. It was just really challenging. I mean, a bass does a visceral physical thing and it doesn't matter if, what the right notes are. Uh, I mean, it, it matters. Um, I just had to make the low end like punch like a bass player would. And it was yeah. just fucking hard, man. It was hard to do. I mean, um, I think I did it, but in a, uh, and the screamers too. Um, you know, KK always said the scream. My kick drum is the bass, and my floor tom is the bass. Yeah. So I don't not totally in that low end. But um, all these things are interesting to talk about. It's the kind of musical challenges that the musicians listening understand. It's like every every project you do, there's these there's different challenges to to making it special. You know, fitting it in and uh, finding finding the things in it that work and that do the to do the thing you want them to do and that everyone else yeah. <laughs> hopefully wants it to do as well. And it's hard to put into words sometimes. <laughs> yeah. But to, to do that thing we do. Exactly. 
exactly. Uh, do you? Oh, by the way, apparently it was from sheet music, uh, is what Nick was saying in the chat. So it was. <laughs> oh, oh, that's okay. That's that's possible. Yeah. Very very important follow up to a very uh, very important comment from earlier. Yeah. Uh, the so I I want to get to. Uh, uh, so before we move on too much, I do want to talk about Nina Hagen a little bit. Um, but let's uh, can we can we just give a can we talk about nervous gender a little bit? I think nervous gender is interesting as well. I mean, it's certainly yeah, spectacle wise slash uh, <laughs> you know, my, there's there's certainly. Um, I mean, I walked into a club and they were they were almost like the germs in the sense that you know they were playing the keyboards as if they were guitars and there was modulations and it was just such fucked up chaos it was just so wrong and and (laughs) it was so terrible that it was that it was that was great yeah (laughs) and i was watching it just like going oh my god and the, the the passion was there and um but i think i did a back flip off the stage you know and uh broke my toe. I might have done some MDMA or something that, that night. I don't do any of those things anymore, but, um, and I just, you know, they, they had, were going through some lineup changes and I'm like, Hey, I'm in if you want me to do it. And, um, what I was trying to do, I had a, I had a metal street sign and a piano pickup that I hooked up to a pickup and I ran the pickup through effects and I was like rolling dice and using it as a drum. And, um, You know, doing weird stuff on that, which, you know, they, Nervous Gender is another band that some part of them wanted to be a, you know, the monkeys. They all, they all, everybody, they all wanted. <laughs> That's what they, they wanted, have, and it turned out different. Yeah. <laughs> you know, despite the fact that they're saying the most horrible, you know, sacrilegious <laughs> lyrics, they still think somewhere that there's there's a place for them in the top forty. Yeah. But yeah. um. So, um, yeah, well, they got an eight-year-old drummer. And by an eight-year-old drummer, I don't mean an eight-year-old drummer like, wow, amazing, a prodigy. No, he was an eight-year-old drummer <laughs> just <laughs> hitting stuff. Just, just and, an eight-year-old, huh? Okay. Yeah. And, and um, but it was really about, uh, um, God, you know, they were pushing so many boundaries. And they were probably pushing some boundaries that they shouldn't have been pushing as well. Like some, like, just like leave that boundary alone but um <laughs> like the boundaries was, of good taste perhaps <laughs> well more the boundaries of like personal behavior that could possibly uh, be okay, dangerous it. and questionable you know um so i mean we were all like young i mean i was i was 20 and but um it was like like i said i was kind of the piano room nerd you know and some of that stuff became like shocking was always shocking to me. You know, I, I tried to play it off and be a sophisticated person, but I was kind of part of me is naive to this day, whatever I've been through the, um, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, which I've decided was all sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It was all a big mistake. <laughs> sex, drugs, and roll. it was a dead end and a wrong turn. I got when people tell me they make excuses for their behavior and they, they, they expound, the philosophy yeah but dude sex drugs and rock and roll that no longer that no longer flies for me anymore that's you know so if your philosophy is sex drugs drugs and rock and roll now just to 
putting it on the table that you could really question, is that really though, is that really a philosophy truly? Sorry. I know that, that I'm no, an old guy. No, no, <laughs> it's, it's, it's well, there's that whole fascination and obsession with like the freeing of the id, right? Like the music as like catharsis and then like, yes, the absolutely. Support that. It's yeah. a young man's game. And you know, if you didn't go through it as a young person, you probably don't have any soul or, or spirit. So, um, but you know, I hope you survive and I hope you come out the other, I hope you come out the other side with like, with that, um, me, me, um, what is it called? Uh, perspective. Turned in, well, what do they call when they turn gold into, uh, lead into gold? Alchemy. Yeah. Al I hope you have alchemically turned that hedonistic behavior into something like a power of that is of value to you. Because uh, I've had so many people that um, didn't survive it, but hey, they, it's a good story as it as it's going. As down. long as you survive it, yeah, that's the that's the key, that's the key factor. Yeah. Uh, or not, or right. not, yeah. leave a good looking corpse. Yeah, that was certainly some of them did. Which actually is a segue, like, because I really do want to talk to, and I will talk about Ninagan. I don't know what our time constraints are. are we no, no, we got, we, we got time, man. This is a long-form show. But yeah, because well, I was going to mention, because after Nervous Gender, after the LP came out, that's when you moved to New York, right, to play with uh, to play with Nina? With Nina, yeah. And uh, yes, I think that's... We exactly don't have to keep right. it strictly sequentially. It's okay to jump around. That's It's, it's something like that. <laughs> I did move to New York. She came to L.A. Yes, in fact, um, I know I was rehearsing with... Um, Nervous gender because Nina put out the word on Rodney Bingenheimer's show that she was looking for Paul Screamer. A friend of mine had hung out with her one night at a club and said she was looking for an American band. And she said, you've got to get Paul Screamer. He's the man for you. And that's how Nina works. She doesn't audition people. She goes from her gut. And so I had the gig. That's amazing. Um, and, <laughs> and I mean, so she came over to my house and I had been having a nervous gender at, which was like a two-bedroom, very dingy apartment. And the living room was Nervous Gender Rehearsal, which was just synthesizers, floor to ceiling, right. everywhere. It just looked like I was, you know, uh, I had all their stuff set up there. And so she looks around and she's like, this is the guy. And um, so she, yeah, she flew me to, to me and Helen, my, my wife, to New York. And we rehearsed there for three months and then did um, toured Europe, which was a, actually a really huge change for me because Nina Hagen was really an, a rock star. Yeah. She was big, and legit big. She, yeah. Yeah. So as big as the screamers were by the end of it, where we could have probably drawn a couple thousand people at the end. And I was starting to get a feeling for that. Um, Nina was playing five and 6,000 seat places every single night. And there was, um, um, you know, it was it was a leap. There was bodyguards and there was a touring with a, her manager was Frank Zappa's manager. So we were touring with Frank Zappa's sound system and his road crew. Nice. Excuse me. And um, it was a real change. And in, in a way, it felt really uncomfortable for me because I was really coming out of this uh, skepticism of um, of what uh, that sort of level of. Um, success does to a person and to an artist you know um and i got to see it firsthand um because it's it's what i like to call a mind fuck you know <laughs> sure yeah i mean of course i mean did you 
it's like being in a different world. I would, I would imagine. Right. I mean, well, yeah, you, you know, you don't touch your equipment, you walk on stage and it's all set up in this big place and um, you stay at a nice hotel and you ride a tour bus and um, you're not moving gear and uh, you know, and look, it's, it's good. And it's just sort of inevitable. I'm not like, I'm actually just saying that I was uncomfortable with it. It was, I did things like, I would like travel sometimes with a truck driver. I made friends with the guy driving the truck and toured with the truck. I just did stuff because I just felt uncomfortable. And I'm because it's a different um, level. Like it's not relatable in the way that you think of we're thinking of music at the time, right? I mean, yeah. And I was questioned. I didn't. I didn't automatically take to it, which I think is interesting because most people would be like, "Well, thank God," and this is it, you know. And <laughs> finally, yeah. <laughs> but it was just. It was just weird. It was. Uh, and um. I mean, I wrote a couple songs for her and they were songs that I wrote in five minutes and then she would kind of wail over the top of it. And and I was so used to like craft, you know, and yeah. and um, and um, so there was uh, I, on the other hand, I was in the presence of a, a talent that was so Teutonic and so <laughs> elemental, right. so yeah. elemental. I mean, she like uh, uh a person I've met very few people in my life like her, you know, uh, and what, what you see with her is what you get. And it's not like she shuts that off that obviously, you know, she's like that at all times. And over the course of her career, she's burned her career to the ground and then built it back up. Multiple and had, times. You know, yeah. <laughs> there's no, no fear. And she's made she's terrible mistakes and, and brilliant, yeah. you know, decisions. And uh, just a, a one of a kind artist, you know, one of a kind. Well, I mean, to be that bold and to be that, you know, apparently fearless from the outside perspective as an artist, like that's. Well, she got she got right? a record she got a record deal with CBS. Okay, we're gonna break the German rock star in America, and they hired a producer who had produced Soft Cell, Mike Thorne, and they got the best session musicians in uh, New York, and she made Nunsex Monk Rock. Right. You know. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. And in, an immovable force and an <laughs> and wait, uh, unstoppable un force and an unmovable action act uh, object and in, yeah. Irresistible force. Irresistible so, force yeah. and uh, yeah. Yeah, she could not be she could not be controlled. And you know, people to this day go, that's an incredible record. Yeah. But I don't think it's the record CBS was planning for. We'll charitably say probably not. Uh, Probably not. And then, so, but at some point, you kind of you you get Pat to play too. You get Pat Smear from from Germs to to um, come. I did, back. which is was kind of the end of it for me because we we flew out to um we flew out to New York for the next tour, which was going to be Rio de Janeiro and not the next big thing. And um, you know, Pat was not the kind of guitarist they they wanted the guy like. Her management uh, wanted the guy that could like plug in his guitar. They we would audition these guys. They're always the same thing. They plug in the guitar and they bust out some guitar center licks, you know. <laughs> right, right. And you go, exactly. oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, that guy. And Pat's yeah. nothing. Pat Pat would plug in his guitar and sit there quietly. And then you know what Pat does is he like finds the part of the song. He finds a guitar part that when the song is done, you're humming the guitar part that he came up with. Yeah. You know, it, yeah. it, he's like another incredible one of a time, one of a kind talent that is very hard to put your finger on um, 
what his talent is. I did a, a whole album with him, um, Ruth and Smear. That's right. It was yeah, just, yeah. The, just, just the two of us. We made home four tracks, and then we went into the studio, an eight-track with Ethan um, at Radio Tokyo and recorded a, another version of it. And, you know, he's like, his influences are Beatles and Queen and Yes and, you know, Darby Crash, whatever. Right. So um, his <laughs> talent is... But his, you know, clearly he's uh, he can play in the biggest bands in the world. So he's he's a most valuable yeah. player. But they didn't see it at the time um, because he wouldn't plug in and do guitar player with. And they fired him. And I just was like, I just felt that discomfort I felt for the three time years I was playing with her sort of came to a head. And I was just like, this is just not right for me. You know, I would rather be playing with nervous gender and twisted roots and 45 grave and and you know SSG. i want to get back to the la scene and do that and so i walked away from that and i played with nina again Later starting on. in 98 yeah. for quite some time for like 10 or 12 years um so i and i was happy to be reunited with her but at the time um you know and i sometimes i sometimes i regretted it my life would have been much easier i could have um you know, played rock star. If you just stuck, you know? if you just stuck with her and just kind of, yeah, yeah, I probably could have been much easier, but I wouldn't have been able to do, you know, the SST scene. I would have, I would have missed right. a lot of stuff, and you know, I had two kids, so yeah. Uh, so a few things there. First of all, I think that like you, that's probably one of the most accurate summations of. Uh, <clears throat> Pat Smears guitar playing I think I've ever heard because again even all the way back to the germs like you wouldn't necessarily especially when they started you wouldn't be like stellar musicianship would not be like on your checkbox but there was something so deeply compelling about that that later turned into like oh these are hooky songs these are songs that like that there's, I mean, there's his, hooks to them his right hand if you're a guitar player there's a couple right hands the one of the right hand, best right hands I ever saw, I saw Keith Richards play once with his yes. own band. Uh, and I saw a three-hour sound check and a three-hour <laughs> show. And his right hand was within, you know, three or four samples for six hours. His feel for every song was every style, funk, reggae, yeah. Chuck Berry, Stone songs. His feel was flaws. And Pat's right hand just makes you go, Ah, oh, it just always feels so good. And not just, you know, downstroke germs music. He can do a lot of different stuff. So John yeah. Reese is another one. Uh Rock from the Crypt, Hot Snakes. Um he's he's another one that's just that's like, oh man, that's 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 you want you wanna like it, start working work out your wrists. <laughs> just it feels <laughs> it makes your music feel so good, you know? Yeah. Uh another you mentioned Twisted Roots. <clears throat> Uh, that and, and that band, of course, started at, right at the era of you know, kind of stuff was starting to get like more violent. I mean, not counting the police, of course, who were, <laughs> were plenty violent to begin with. Um, how was how was that band received, especially by you know uh, you had skinheads and stuff coming in? You had like uh, clashes of culture uh, as far as that goes. Oh, it's funny, you know. It's funny, like uh, I actually. Yeah, somebody just kind of sort of, I was just snarky with someone in social media about this. So like I did, it did get really violent, didn't it? But like, I didn't go in the pit. <laughs> right. <You> know, it, <laughs> yeah. You don't have to so, deal with it. Ah, no problem. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like what it really got was it got a lot bigger and yeah. not only like uh, 
bigger, like instead of 100 people or 50 people, there was like 500 people. And the audience, since you had 500 people, the biggest guys were in the middle. I'm sure there was horrible, terrible people there. But I mean, when, when people went from being a bunch of 120-pound artists to 220-pound um you know, ex football players or surfers, like let's everybody calls them jocks. I mean, they might not have been jocks, they might have been got surfers or something like that. Um, so I, I know I'm supposed to say how the, the big Orange County people ruin the scene, but I kind of don't actually feel that way. Um, and so when I we started Twisted Roots, those are the people that liked us, and um, right. the, the critics that had thought that um, the germs and the um screamers were so such uh brilliant artistic accomplishments um didn't get us at all and we actually were doing something that i know was challenging to their sensibilities and there what we were doing was our friend who was my and pat's best friend in high school and at various times um uh, had committed suicide and some of our other friends were um, we're, we're having uh, a really hard time. And we uh, started to question the uh, self-destructive side of punk rock. We weren't yeah. just, we weren't questioning punk rock, but I think that even though, and I'm kind of proud that we did have this vision, Pat and I and Kira and Maggie, we had this vision that um, there had to be a way for punk rock not to be a, a a suicide note and um, a commitment to, uh, you know, a life of heroin abuse and homelessness and brain damage. And, you know, not to say we weren't still having. Sure. You know, but plenty of, uh, but I, the idea of um, um, to somehow, and David Foster Wallace talks about this uh, in some essays, um, the idea of not embracing cynicism and, um, the cool sarcasm um it's very fine line because when you do that you're in danger of being sentimental and very cheesy and very uncool and so twisted roots we were like we're not we're gonna we were sort of had our sights set on like this sort of happy and hopeful thing but informed informed by um death and addiction you know that we had seen so um i don't think the the people in hollywood the hollywood people didn't get that at all but um damned if we didn't have a bunch of those big orange county people slamming in the front when right, we would right. play down there <laughs> yeah you know and the and the and the the people in la were a little bit like wait well this doesn't sound like the screamers and you know there's no kamikaze death trip here right. this is uh are they selling out well i mean you listen to that band it's it's uh not very polished i was gonna say it wouldn't, so, wouldn't be um, the band that i would accuse you of selling out on for sure <laughs> i mean i love it but it's not like that that, that came that, the sell outing part of twisted roots came later when every when my singer quit and rather than just going okay that's the moment in time and um that was twisted roots i tried to keep doing twisted roots with other singers yeah which was like probably just you know stupid well like i was very insightful in some things areas of my life but there's some areas of my life just i didn't get it didn't, didn't land the same so i get it i get it now like you know right. 
it would start a different start a new band don't try to like use don't but i wasn't good at coming up with band names that was i was just too lazy to think of a new one was was a big part to of be it. fair coming up with band names is terrible and it's it's even worse now <laughs> worse now Damn, every, that's why the... i go by that's why i go by paul rossler if you search yeah, it right. you can just you'll either get you either get me or like there's a couple they think there's a molecular biologist somewhere and it's easy to tell us apart. <laughs> right, you're not going to get confused with it. What what was your uh, yeah. what was your first exposure to Dead Kennedys? Did you was it the the In God We Trust? Did you hear that first? Did you see them or would you play with them? Like what was the Well, wasn't wasn't Fresh Fruit before that? Uh, Fresh Fruit was the first group. Yeah. So the, the, maybe the first the, the first thing <laughs> I remember what the the first thing they did, they did a, a single with Geza, that yeah. was uh, California Uberalis, and um, it was the same. It was California Uberalis and yes. Cambodia. You're right. You're right. Right. You're, I'm. I'm. In, with, it was, you know, it was terrible. Great. I was. I was supposed to have East Bay Ray and Klaus Fluoride on uh, earlier this month, but of course, with the passing of DH Belagro, we're gonna do that in December sometime. But obviously, I need to bone up a little bit if I'm getting the chronology wrong. <laughs> but um, so it was yeah. the first thing. It was they that did first that single. single and yeah. They did that, and so I heard about them then. And we were going up to San Francisco with the Screamers quite a bit. Um, we're going up almost every month and playing with Bouet, and we went up a few times. So they were around, but they weren't in the very first way. But they, I remember, Jello's in the audience in that um, Target video. Yeah. So he was there, and then and when after they, so I was really good close friends with Geza, and I think Jello asked Geza for my number to play on fresh fruit and probably he was probably thinking if i get a screamer on there that'll give me some sort of or maybe he was just tipping his hat to a band that he really loved yeah but um so i flew up there and um you know he even paid me a hundred bucks and i played on a couple songs and he didn't they, they didn't need me although playing stealing people's mail it was yeah. interesting working with joe he had a very specific idea of what he wanted and it was Again, you know, it's very fast and hard to play. Um, but um, so, yeah. And then I jumped up on stage with them a few times. Uh, you know, the, the first time I think I'd been up there doing the record. So I kind of was a little bit rehearsed and we did a show up there and that was recorded. And it's on that Dangerous Minds. Th I was going to say it's blog. a Dangerous There's Minds actually thing. a recording yeah. of that turned up. I, I heard that. It's crazy. One of it, um, the one song... Um... Oh God! What is it? It's it's like one of the early ones. It, it like sounds completely different. Well, I jumped, I jumped. Well, I play on like six songs, and I actually know how the songs go, and which I didn't remember because they came to LA I think it's too later drunk and said, to "Hey, do you want to jump up and play?" And I did it, and I really didn't. Yeah. I really didn't know the songs, and I was making like <laughs> noise over the top, but I was just making kind of feedback noise. It was it was kind of cool in its own way, but. The Dangerous Minds, I actually did know the song, so we must have rehearsed. I just remember, if I remember, there's one of the but songs yeah. I, I want to say. I, is, I bump into Jello Vance when I'm. I, I, was, I think it's Too Drunk to Fuck, where it almost has like a like a, like like 60s horror movie sound or something to it, uh, or something along those lines. Like, it's really cool. It's just, it's it's pretty. Well, yeah, Too Drunk to Fuck, I'm playing this distorted, super fast thing. And then there's another song called Drug Me, where mm -hmm. I think I took we took a grand piano and ran it ran it through distortion and it's like but yeah um great band i i just i recorded some stuff with dh three or four years ago and uh they someone just they contacted me about uh having ray play on it and finishing it up yeah. it's like uh it's a couple covers 
but yeah, that it's was a, sad. Such yeah. a shock, man. It's it's a. I mean, it's, it's, it's it happens, but it's it's it's, it's shocking. It's just a total shocker. But I, did you hear the they did that remix of Fresh Fruit? Have you heard that? Yeah. Oh God, I should listen to that. Um, I should check it out. No. Oh, he said uh, Sean Garrison again. Uh, says Police Truck is the one I'm thinking of, where it sounds like horror movie music. <laughs> so okay, that's. I don't. Yeah, I don't think that's me. I'm only on a couple songs on that album. Yeah, I think that. Well, I do remember the Dangerous Minds thing because it, it was interesting to hear that band uh, live with keyboards because it already was pretty full sounding. Like it was sort of like there was already not. not <laughs> between all of them, great players, there wasn't a whole lot of space <laughs> to work with. <laughs> Dude, it's fucking fast. You know, <laughs> exactly. back, then, back back then I had my chops. Like MIDI has ruined me. Now I now I can fix wrong notes and like you know. But back then you actually had to do it. Yeah. Well yeah, so they did they did reissue uh Fresh Food for Riding Vegetables and um it was yeah, it was the, the remix by Lord Al by was it Chris Lord Algae? That's uh, that's right. Which is not the first person I would think of to do that. They could have called you, man. I I think uh, it's interesting because, um, you know, you've had these remixes, you've had these versions and, you know, he's going to do something. He's going to bring a certain um, skill set to the table. It's always interesting to hear what, you know, these clashes, because in a way it is a clash, you know? Yeah. I so. mean, the, the, I, I, I understand the idea of kind of bringing something out that maybe you were... You wanted to hear more or coming back to it. But it's also like once it's out in the world, people already. No, I mean, not that they're pulling like a Star Wars, uh, you know, like J- uh, George Lucas putting in CGI extra characters and <laughs> and Han shooting first or anything. But it is a little bit of revising, you know, like a punk rock history. I mean, I, I don't. Or is it? I, I don't just, know. Maybe that's no. I, I don't. I don't really see it that way. I see it as like remixes are like sort of a time honored tradition by now, and that's a lot true. of times it's one. in the hip hop ver- world. And so you have a guy, so a mixer. It's very interesting. Mixers' ears. They they're they're sort of like rabbits, and they have these preternatural skills. And it's like, you know, you could hear it and just go, "Oh no, that's just terrible," or you could hear it and you go, "That's interesting," or you could hear it and go, "That's amazing," and. um and I think uh, a band, a record that's 45 years old that we've all heard a million times, like they should let like uh, Jacob Collier or, or like some hip hop guy remix it, you know? Oh, or, go even, oh, I see what you're saying. So go even like crazier, like go like more. Yeah, I mean, hmm, okay. I'm just, I'm just really open. It's like, you know, if it's bad, the, the, you know, I think this is also remixes. I think a lot of people hear those remixes and goes, and they'll say, doesn't sound that different. And the people it sounds different to as musicians, you know, and a lot, a lot of people will be right, like, yeah. so yeah, yeah. That, what, what's the big deal? You know? Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't, I don't, I'm not, I don't, I'm not precious about this stuff and I'm not a purist. And um, like I said, you know, if it sucks, it sucks. When'd you, uh, so when'd you originally hook up with Mike Watt? There was a, I know you played with him uh, in the second man. Uh, so oh, when D right, Boone, but... when D Boone first died, um, he wasn't really playing with anybody and Kira reached out to him and they started doing dose. And at the same time, I think she said, why don't you play with Paul? 
And me and him did a band called Criminy. That's right. Um, that's right. Yeah. And so I don't think he'd even started Fyros yet. I think he was still just like, I mean, that was such a devastating yeah. blow, you know? And, um, you know, and I was just writing a lot of songs. It was, it was weird because I'd write these piano songs and, um, and, and Watt would go, okay, that's good. You know, but I, I later came to understand Mike's musical sense about his way of arranging stuff. And I, I think he wanted to play with me because he'd never played with a keyboard before. And the piano, it's such a odd. And so I would just kind of play the songs like I was Elton John or something. <laughs> you know, and he would play. So I kind of missed. There's a couple times where we went, okay, let's try to integrate the piano and the bass and create something. But it really wasn't like that. It was like, I mean, just for, he would write a very complex and interesting bass thing behind this Elton Johnny piano thing. <laughs> and so I feel like I kind of missed, I feel like there was a, a little bit of a missed opportunity um, to, for that, you know? Right. Um, and I don't, I don't, I also think it's kind of the worst, one of the worst periods of songwriting. I don't really think I became, I didn't really became feel good about my songwriting till the nineties, to be honest with you. Really? So okay. I don't, yeah, I don't think, I think I had to do, I say this about a lot of artists. There's one an artist I really admire named Jacob Collier, mm -hmm. who's a, one of the greatest geniuses alive, but you know, a heroin habit would really help him, you know, because <laughs> there's just not enough suffering there. Oh, you man. Know, he's more, more skill and talent than any human being on earth, but no mental illness whatsoever. Oh, there's not a, gotcha. and we love mental illness. It makes such good art. So yeah. by the nineties, I was able to really tap into the mental illness when right. I started, I started, um, and I documented it all. Uh, and I put it on Bandcamp. It took me a long time. It took me decades, but I finally put it all up under, um, it's four parts. It's four double albums and it's called the drug years kind of, a, a, you know, um, a big, a large work. Um, so, yeah. um, but when I was playing with Mike, I was, I had two babies and I was, um, no, not like my life was comfortable. I mean, I was, we we're super poor, but I was young and um, I had these children and, and it was very, you know, that what I was talking about, about Twisted Roots, about willing to be uh, embrace, um, you know, positive, positive thinking, which can yeah. tip over into sentimentality. I think a lot of the songs I was working with Mike Watt, I was continuously tipping over into sentimentality by that point. So um, anyway, later on, I got to play with him again. He had me play on his, um, what's that? Um, the the Ballhogger Tugboat, right. which was masterful. And then he called me to fill in a couple times for Pete Mazich when Pete um, couldn't make the tours. So I'd have to jump in and do that was, that was degree of difficulty. Yeah. You know, trying like we would rehearse and then he'd go away for on tour for six weeks. And then I'd come for the last two weeks after not having practice with him for six weeks and try to pull it off. And if I messed anything up, Watt would start screaming at me on stage and even if I wouldn't mess things up, he would also scream at me on stage sometimes. Like if he would mess things up, he would yeah. scream at me on stage. And um, and you know, I don't think I'm being too controversial. Yeah. I think yeah. the people I think the people who have talked with 
who've played with Mike know this side of his personality. And you know what? Thelonious Monk was the same way. Yeah. So if we're, if I'm going to sit here and say it was, it was sometimes hard to play with Mike. Uh, it was an honor to play with Mike. And I would say that Mike Watt is probably one of the most underrated artists. Oh, uh, alive. Yeah. And the, and, and like, I know he is revered, but nobody ever talks about his hoot page and it, it on Mike Watt's hoot page, you will find his tour diaries so for good. the last 45 years written in some strange form of English. <laughs> it's and certainly unique, I, yes. <laughs> and I think it's, I think it's Proustian. It's like Finnegan's Wake or Remembrance of Things Past. Yeah. I think it's uh one. It's the greatest literary achievement out, to come out of punk rock, and it's a million words. I don't know how many words, and so um so. And he's we, never stopped we, doing it. I mean, he continues to do it to this day. It's great. I mean, it's it's incredible. It, it's incredible, and so. I and he always had that in him from the earliest days of the of the Minutemen. He was a true, a literary person, and he never he, you know, writers write, you know, yeah. you don't like I hey I wrote a book, you know, and there's my book, you know. No, you write if you're a writer, you write every day, and eventually you start to figure out some stuff. And Mike Watt wrote every day, and figured out some stuff, and um. Man, so uh, I always like to, because I want to be able to, I want to be allowed to complain about what a fucking creep he was to <laughs> yelling at me on stage. Well, you sometimes. can also give him some props too. <laughs> yeah, everybody, you know, it's like you're a little, little bit of uh, the sweet and a little bit of the sass. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I love, I love that guy, and and I and I hopefully I have honored him in a sense beyond, you know, great. Maybe he's on the cover of Bass Player Magazine. Right. Good for him. And he's played with Iggy Pop and he's in the Minutemen. Can we possibly, can we consider the possibility that he might be before our eyes that none of us are seeing one of the great literary giants of our generation that we're, let's just, let's just put it out there. You know, I don't know. So he sure has written a, a, a big thing. I, uh, it's, it's been a couple of years now, but. It's, it's a rare distinction. I've been on his show, which is which is obviously an honor. But he's been on this show as well, and I got a lot of props from folks that were like, "Wow, you really kept him on track with all the stories." <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah, it was work because it's you know his his brain's going a mile a minute. He's got a million things to talk about. He's going this way. He's going that way. Like it's but it was it was absolutely worthwhile because I mean, what an incredible life he's lived, what an incredible career in music. But I mean, what an incredible motor mouth too. And that's coming from me." He invented his own language. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. Not everyone can do that, right? He's actually coming on again in December, uh, which I'm very excited for. Cause it's been a long time since uh, since we. Well, you tell him how I propped, how I just blo- I, you know <laughs> praise the hoot page. I I, I will, I, and that's a great point because now, so the idea of being able to have something like that on the internet now, of course, everyone's doing it on Facebook and like Twitter and and whatever, but like the idea of Seeing those experiences put forward in a way that, like, someone, like, like a, a younger person could, like, look at that and kind of get a window into, like, what touring is like, or at least what touring is like if you're Mike Watt, and, and see that. I mean, that was, I consider that a formative experience. Like, it, and it was pretty much, like, him and Rose from the Poster Children and, you know, Michael Dahlquist from Silkworm. But, like, there were so few people doing that. And it was a, 
like a message in a bottle to a certain degree, right? But for the kind of person that it's for, that's like was so interested, and without a show like this to uh, have people be able to like find out more about it, that was the window into the world, and it continues to be so for for people that. <laughs> Still, yes. Oh my God, he still does it in the comments. Yeah. <laughs> of course he does. It's my quad. Of course he's gonna keep doing it, man. Come on, yeah. Uh, but yeah, he made he made all of us do it. Actually, he would he and which is also really interesting. He makes all the guys in the band do it. So he you get that three perspective or four perspective. Yeah. I mean, Paral- the, the uh, Rashomon effect, right? Like you get it's everyone's more, <laughs> it, It's a work of art that could never be grasped. It could never be grasped by a person. You could study it your whole life. And not only his writing, but the context of the other, the other people in his band. I mean, what a monumental work that is. Really and amazing. the commitment to doing it as well, which I think is is pretty fantastic. Uh, the uh, so you touched briefly upon the um, the four the four part the 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 drug years the the ones you have the, oh, yeah, the paintings uh-huh. for all that. I think that that's interesting because you have a there's um did, did you do the paintings yourself? Uh, yeah. Where what okay so where where do the paintings come? Like how did the the art fit with the admittedly somewhat heavy material? I mean, it's it's just pop songs, really. It's yeah. um, it's the songs are Elton Johnny, but informed by um, you know, drugs. <laughs> um, Elton Johnny is but, my new favorite descriptor, by the way. I love that. <laughs> when you're a piano player, you have to remember about Elton John. He had a lyricist that was writing some pretty Bernie fucking Taupin. yeah. You know, I mean, there's Elton John with his glitter and his jumping around, and he's a great singer and a great piano player. Yeah, and the whole whole image of it but if you actually look at what bernie Taupin was doing there's something much more serious and kind of when it was happening at the time i was sort of focused on you know there is some some darker things going on and you know you didn't really have punk rock so i think it's kind of a legitimate thing and if you're a piano player writing songs with melodies you know and granted um i was also it gets a little bit gnarlier than that but this some of that is sprinkled in there but um what was the question? <laughs> oh, the the, the, oh, the, the you art about the paint- Yeah, like you're the, about asking about the paintings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I had my stuff set up in in my garage, which was um my wife at the time was named Helen and she was a kleptomaniac and so she was um you know she was a compulsive thief and so our, our the garage was like this crazy like weird tweaker palace and um, I had my stuff set up there and um. Sometimes while I was working, I kept asking her to do paintings for me from the images that were coming into my head. And then I was like, I'm going to see if I can do it. And I read a book called Drawing with the Right Side of Your Brain, which was really helpful about just, um, you know, draw what you see, not what you think and stuff like that. Really simple. And so I started playing with the acrylics and um, and I did it for like a year or two. But then I thought... Um, fuck, you know, I'm a musician and I'm never going to master music and I could spend my whole life working on music and never master it. And this is, this is, you know, I had, a, I felt like I had a few successes in the painting um, that I was happy with, but um, I, I wanted to get back to put a hundred percent into the music. So I stopped yeah. doing that, but I thought that those paintings actually captured the time. It was a really dark, I was a, you know, as a construction worker, handyman, 
painting people's houses and, you know, uh, doing remodels on Sears and stuff like that. Just and, and really unhappy because I felt like my musical career had slipped away. And um, and then I would do music all night, every night and sleep for a couple of three or four hours and then go back and do it and um, coach the kids basketball team and help them with their homework and read with them, read them, um, read them books before bed. And I read them a lot over over those eight years. I read them Mark Twain and I read them The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. And uh, I read them every night and it adds up and um, made sure that you know, tried to keep it together as well as I could, but I, and I didn't really care about playing. I, I just was dedicated to writing and composing and I would still get gigs, you know, and during that time I, I played with Lee Andrioni and I had got to play on Conan O'Brien and, yeah. and I got to play on um, the other Conan. Madison, right. <laughs> yeah. Madison, Madison square garden. And, you know, I had some, like, I would get sometimes these calls to do, I played with the toured with the joy killer they would have some good good things happen, but really, I was really focused on um, uh, just the writing that music, and because I had those eight tracks, you know. Yeah. And um, and then when when that was over, and I got sober, people, you know, gave me real recording studios. Funny how that works, isn't it? <laughs> and they gave me real recording studios, and they said, "Hey, you know, here's this recording studio, and you know, if nobody's in there, go ahead and do what you want." So I took a lot of those home recordings and started trying to make them sound better. Sometimes I could improve them. Sometimes I would ruin them and just have to go with the original demos. And sometimes I'd re-record them completely. And that would be, that was the right thing. And I did it and did it and did it for like 20 years. And finally I was just like, it still wasn't perfect because it's 65 fucking songs right. and five, <laughs> five hours of music. Yeah. And it was like, I'm never going to, and I'm trying to out demo the demo. So finally I was just like, COVID happened. I was like, I'm going to set a deadline, you know, for January 1st, 2021. And I'm going to say it's, say it's done and whatever state it's in at that point, I've been working on it for 30 years. So that's I just, what it is. Yeah. That's what it is. And, um, and I'm like, just put it on Bandcamp, and, you know, and it's got some, it's funny. And after I did that, I put out um, my new record, yeah, the turning I, of the bright world, the one that it was the like turning the turning of the bright world, which I had this weird feeling about that record that it makes everything else I ever did look kind of shitty, <laughs> which <laughs> which is like because I was really like I look at like the drug years as kind of like Watsu page. It's like there is not a lot of people that just for eight years every single night worked by themselves relentlessly 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 you know there's just like it's sort of its own thing that you can't compare it to a lot of things and so i've really had it on a pedestal i was really super proud of it it was like my masterpiece like my yeah. like top this right and then i feel like i just blew it out of the water with the new record because it's just this is better i don't know i feel that's like how that's just my how I feel right now. So well, that's when, a weird... when that's your latest work, that's a great feeling. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's great. I mean, as much as, you know, perspective and time when you get distance. So away Conan, from... no one gives a crap about some old guy's newest record. <laughs> they really don't. They don't. I mean, I'll say I've had some like great response and I've had mm. a few people that I really care about that really like it. It's actually, it's actually been good 
to be honest with you, but um, you know, we've talked for an hour and a half and, and, you know, now we're, ta we're talking about the old guy's new record and it's more that, you know, the, um, just the weird, strange feeling of like going, God, if I would have put this record out right after the screamers. <laughs> yeah. 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 Right. Like in like 1980 or something. Yeah. I mean, or, or something that's good. I mean, this is definitely an old person's record, which was kind of co cool thing. Like, so like I've kind of talked about this a little bit in interviews, but like, you know, punk rock is about being authentic. You know, it's not poster, you know, we call those people posers when we our instincts tell them <laughs> tell us that they're fake, right? Right, right. So for me, I had to go, what is the piano nerd who's been doing this for 50 years? Like, what does he sound like when he's not being fake? You know, you gotta, you mm. gotta, I had to really, and it's like the truth is like you start thinking about dying and you try to you start thinking about like um just like not responding like with rage to things like responding with like like finding like joy in in, in the mundane and some of these like um things that we never would have written about we never would have written about them when we were young and angry and fucked up and can you still could it still be cool and not just like embarrassing is it possible can it be done that's the challenge you know well yeah i mean that's uh especially when art is a big part of your life like you, what do you, I, I suppose you may find value in like singing about the same things and playing songs about the same things when you were 20 uh or later in life but it's you use your perspective and you can think about things differently and think things deeper especially you mentioned sometimes with more clarity, right? You know, like, especially if you're- Well, uh, it's different perspective for sure. But yeah, to dare to say, okay, look, I'm writing from the, more from the end of my life from the beginning. And if I'm honest, that's what, that's what you have to listen to. You know, that's, that's what I've got to do. And um, hmm, is it wiser? No, because there's a wisdom, dude, the fucking, I hear 16 and 17 year olds. I hear, uh, you know, Billie Eilish and I hear- my God, Phoebe Bridgers and Connor Oberst when they're 18, it's just saying things that my jaw drops at the wisdom that drips from their lips. The truth is it just took me a really long time to feel like, like I could be even hold a candle to what some of those people do when they're kids. You know, yeah. I'm a late bloomer. I'm a, I'm a late bloomer. That's just, that's my, what I think, you know, I did, luckily I did some cool stuff playing in some of these bands, like with Nina and the Screamers, where I was got to, you know, people have to hear my name and I got to do some stuff that I think mattered. But, you know, I, I don't think I really was able to, to find any solutions where, where you, you hear a song and you go, that's kind of the answer, isn't it? It might be an answer you can't put your finger on. Yeah. It might not be so preachy that you can say, oh, Paul says I should do this. Well, that's not what I mean. I just mean like, yeah, where you just go, okay, I agree. I don't know what he said, but I agree. Right, right. Like like the, the intrinsic aspect of the creative art, be like, yeah, that's, that's yes. And then you're like, like, like Gigi Allen, you know, Gigi <laughs> right. Allen. Like, I, I don't know what he says, what he's saying, but I agree. Like for me, I, I never did actually agree with, with Gigi Allen, but no, some no, people. Yeah, yeah, like. What he was some saying people, was mostly garbage, frankly, if you ask me. But yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> but some people, 
it's not about what he says. You know, it's like that level of commitment to um, scatology or whatever it was that he really was, you know, that's what that's what they're looking for in their art. Yeah, you know, yeah. I can't deliver that. I don't want to deliver. That. That's not who I am. But fuck, you know, take it as far as you can take it. You know, be as true to yourself as as you can be. So what kind of things do you think you've picked up from like playing with all these different musicians over the years? Like what, what specific things have you learned from like playing with different, these different folks? Cause it's been such a wide variety of, of people and a wide variety of personalities in some cases. Um, I you- just read this. I just read this the other day, the answer to this question. And, and I thought, Oh, that's a cheat. That's cheesy. You know, and that says, nothing. but actually it's exactly these people. Um, uh, believe in themselves unquestioningly. They believe in themselves. They they have their own vision and they believe in their own vision. And for me, I guess that's what took me so long to, um, I mean, with Twisted Roots, we did have this vision of what we were trying to do, but um, about, you know, like this death trip fucking is, is too fucking rough. Like we're 23. Do we really want to commit to the death trip? Oh, that's a good vision. Yeah. But uh, all these, someone like Nina Hagen and look, I am really committed to the ambiguous and I am committed to uncertainty. So it's, I really think right around the time you think you settled on the answer, you're, you're going to find out you're an asshole in very short order. <laughs> you know, you're going to, sure. and, yeah. and I love finding out I'm wrong because you know what? When I find out I'm wrong, I'm not as wrong as I was five minutes ago. So it's kind of hard to 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 walk through life like a Nina Hagen or a Tommy Gear or a Jello Biafra, so certain, you know. I, and you know, Pat the Bunny, who's an artist I recorded, who I've had such amazing respect for, and he sang unflinchingly from the anarchist perspective in Ramshackle Glory and Johnny Hobo and all these things, and he was an iconic iconic figure the bob dylan of his generation for a certain group of people and at 27 years old at 23 he got sober and five years later he said i don't believe in any of this stuff anymore and i can't sing these songs anymore and in fact i don't even want to be a musician anymore and he walked away from it and so it's that certainty in yourself which is really a false certainty a lot of the time you know, and dangerous, you're actually a propagandist and you're, but you know, these people somehow they, they're, they believe, they really believe. And it's fuck, it's messed up because then you'll get some person who believes in themselves completely and it doesn't work for them. So. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. And it does, it doesn't fly and no one else cares. And it's a, yeah. so <laughs> what, what, so what have I learned? Uh, I would say, you know, never give up stay stay with it work ethic work i and some of these people are completely lazy some of these people like right at the key moment of their career where they could take off they um get fucked up and don't show up for the fucking show yeah, so yeah i can't say that you know that's not true um i would say that um life is i'm reading a great book by um robert sapolsky called um called behave and he's a neurobiologist and it's like how the brain works and it's about behavior. It's very, very dry and academic, but he's also really, really funny. Yeah. And like what I'm really learning is 
how complicated people are? Complicated. Yes. We ask, <laughs> we ask super simple questions, <laughs> super simple questions, and we give super simple answers. But below those simple questions, simple answers is neurobiology, which is incomprehensible and amazing. <laughs> well, yeah, and you can... You never know until you ask, too. I mean, that's 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 the other thing. Like, if you uh, yeah. you never know what depths, you know, never know what challenges people are having. You know, you never know uh, what epiphanies they may have with them. Yeah, their their people are really different, but um, but they are passionate and committed to to their stuff. And and I'd say you have to be passionate, and committed to what you're doing, whether you're playing with somebody else. Or if you're doing your own thing, yeah. and then it's kind of out of all of our hands. I will say nowadays, and this is something I'm wrestling with, the people that um, are get the most attention are the people who are passionate and committed to making noise on social media. They have a love for that, and they're they're good at it, and they're you know. Which for me, um, I'm like less and less like that. I'm becoming more and more retiring, and less and I have less and less inkling to do that, yeah. and I have to sort of wonder if you know but if you're really good at i tell people when they walk out of the studio like now what and I, go, I say now if you care you have to be as dedicated and devoted to promoting yourself as you were to making this music and if not you made this music for yourself which is a which, noble which is fine noble, there's nothing wrong with noble, that. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely noble task or you have to you know and even now, even if you are committed to that and enjoy that and love that pursuit of likes and attention, you still may not get it only because there's such a glut of art now. It's, you it's, know, and it's, it's pretty much luck of the draw to even connect with anyone, you know, uh, because you make, you know, you may connect with five people or 10 people. And can you yeah. be satisfied with that? And can you remember you did it because you had to do it? There was no choice. You know, you were going to do it no matter what. So. You know, I mean, before you came, I had an hour and I was writing a crazy piano piece because Jatan and I are going to do a classical album next year. Nice. She came to me five years ago and she said, I want to do orchestral um, music. And I was like, and I, we went to the Hollywood Bowl and we saw hosts of the planets and it was pretty cheesy and like, okay, I can do this. I can, I could probably write something like this, like you know, Carmina Burana and like that. But then there was an opening band before Holst called, and, and the conductor was named um, Daniel Bjarnason. And he was, to, he was debuting a violin concerto that was written in 2017. And I was like, oh, fuck, this is what music sounds like that's written now. And if I write this now, it can't sound like it was written in 1940 or 1890 it's got to live right like this shit. Like, Oh my God. So I've been trying to write like that, which is so crazy hard and difficult. And then I send it to poor Jatan and she has to write words and sing to it. to it. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm, I'm writing it. So like it never repeats. It's always morphing and evolving and it's never in the same tempo beat. And, and there's no melody or the melody is like, Oh, there's a melody. Oh no, it's not. It's gone. And, Harney's dissonant. It's so, so um, she's coming in next week. And, and instead of me just throwing her to the wolves, like I deliberately did for the first five years, <laughs> we're going to sit down and we're going to, I'm going to include myself in the nightmare process of 
creating the libretto and the um and how to sing to this music. Um, but I'm really excited. I played it for a few people and they're like, oh my God, this is this is the best thing you've ever done. And I'm like, that's weird, but it is <laughs> weird that you say that, but it's it's really flat out like uh just cacophonous, but orchestra music. Like no, like I have to not allow myself to use distortions and echoes and any of the lo-fi and yeah, weird it's a completely sampling. different muscle group. They're 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 not used to hearing that kind of thing and that kind of you know. Which, <laughs> you know, it's it's hard, but it's fun. Uh so a couple more things. Uh, so, so first, and by the way, I'll, I'm going to link to the record. Uh, when we originally talked about having you on, it was, uh, "Turning the Bright World" had just come out, and it's still. I know that July is like a thousand years ago now, in in, in current uh, timelines, but it's still a great record. I think people should check it out. I'm, I'm going to put it in the show notes. Um, Fancy Space People. We didn't. We didn't. We didn't talk about Fancy Space People. Can you? Can you talk about how God, that came well, to pass? <laughs> If what an amazing life and career I've had. Yeah, it's, it's you know? you're one of those guys. There's like a million things to talk about. It's not it's not a but the thing is thing. the thing is, you know, I got to record and be in fancy space people. And I know that the album that none of you guys will ever hear because Don will never finish it, which is so heartbreaking. Because I finished it twice already. Like the bam the bam. <laughs> The band broke up and Nora came to me and said, could you finish the recordings? I'm like, sure, Nora. So me and Nora finished the recordings. And it's like, I like to say it's the greatest album of the 21st century. The previous to that, it was the Deadbeat 6661313 album, the double album that none of you have ever heard because it was only released on double vinyl with a lenticular cover, mail order by Scott Guerin only. So that was the... <laughs> So no one has ever heard it. Like, this is the story of my life. So this, the 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 new greatest album of the 21st century is the Deadbeat, the uh, Fancy Space People album, which I finished with Nora. Which Don then came and said, "No, no, no, this it's good, but it's not right." So then we remixed it again because he was going with um um uh, what's his name um the lo-fi uh, singer-songwriter artist that Don works with. Oh, uh... uh Him. The can the canceled guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um... I, I'm, I know he's you're so about. He's so canceled, we can't even come I, up with his name. Exactly. That's messed up. Uh, 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 you, uh, you'll pink, think of it. Pink? Anyway, he was going on... Uh, Ariel Pink. Ariel right? Pink. Ariel, Ariel Pink. Pink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, he, he was um, going on tour with Ariel Pink, yeah. and he said, well, I've got to have something to take. So I finished it finished up this incredible thing sent him off with it but nope he didn't get it done in time because don is as just as crazy as i am and so twice i finished this record and both times so majestic so heartwarming so insane such classic mott the hoople ziggy stardust meets i don't pink floor i don't even know what just the most grandiose so I'd be working on this music and we would be laughing, you know, like usually people use grandiose as an insult, right? but you can get something so grandiose that it's just epic. Yeah. 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 And, and then fancy space people album, which I doubt will ever, ever be heard unless someone dies and, and the things get out. But 
there is an EP out. You can get a taste of the Granciosity if you go to song Fancy Space People by Fancy Space People, and you can get a taste of um, what that album is, how great it is. But you were going to ask about the tour opening for Smashing Pumpkins. Uh, I actually, <laughs> I actually was not going to, going to ask about that. You can, if you have, if you have something you want to say about that, you can't. I don't particularly care. For I don't that. know. We oh, we toured with Smashing Pumpkins. I didn't really haven't listened to much Smashing Pumpkins. So they were doing a beautiful set. Their fans were very angry because they wouldn't do any of the hits. And now later, he was a very odd guy, and I've heard very odd yeah. stuff about him. But we were playing this beautiful stuff, and his audience was like. Billy, why are you making us listen to Fancy Space People? Please right. play your hits <laughs> and don't do this to us. But we did it and we wore our onesies. And um, after we got back, they kicked me out of the band, which was, um, you know, I think they wanted to strip it down to a four, you know, uh, 45 Grave also kicked me out of the band because honestly, I'm superfluous to these projects. But as a producer, I think I was more helpful because I actually got their recordings made. Yeah, well, it's um, arguably more, especially if they let anyone listen to them, it'd be very important. <laughs> yes, and then and then after after I had been kicked out of the band for a few years, Don called me up and said, "Hey, you know those recordings that you made? Can we?" So we're all, you know, I don't. I'm making one of the things I try to do. I'm trying to. I'm working on this thing because I think this is very punk rock, and I read it somewhere about having no grievances about living your life with no grievances. Mm. It's kind of a crazy thing to try to do. Like no grievances about, you know, anything. Like, you know, the tsunami or like the, the you know, the, you know, MAGA. No, no grievances. I got no problem with anything. And people get very furious with me. But guys, it's a thought experiment. Don't get carried away. It's not like I su am successful at this stuff. I would imagine that if you feel schadenfreude for, you know, the defeat of like uh, fascism, <clears throat> that's you still have a grievance against fascism. I'm not seeing I'm successful about it. But when it comes to something as cheesy and minor as being kicked out of a band and then asked to rejoin the band, you know, and that sort of <laughs> drama and rising above those sort of grievances, it's a place to start. Paul, this has been awesome, man. Thank you so much for doing this. It took us a while to get it together, but. Uh... I'm, I've been, did it? No, we started on time, didn't we? No, no. I mean, it took us a while. Well, originally, I was going to have you on July. That's what I'm talking about. But uh... oh, that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, it's been really fun, man. Uh, it's really it, fun. So deeply appreciative of you. Very giving of your time. Obviously, we could probably go on for a few more hours, but at some point, uh, we we we. Got, oh, it we, would it would get so highly technical yeah. that nobody would be on the phone. Uh, I really appreciate your questions. Are fantastic. Thank you for your knowledge and staying on top of all this stuff. Yeah, brother. Good job. Last thing, this is the only canned question I ever ask, and uh, you can choose to interpret it however you oh, like. Shit. Okay. Why do you do what you do? Oh, probably some childhood trauma that I'm like living out repeatedly. How's that? That's good. <laughs> and, 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 I, and I love works. it. <laughs> so, and I love it because I'm working out my issues. Right. <laughs> and in some cases this is your musically in some cases uh maybe less oh they're they're not music you know the issues are no doubt way more serious than and that's what you get for asking canned questions well it's i, I like to hear how people answer and, and so does the audience so uh, i man those i always watch those canned questions and i watch people answer them really glibly and they're really funny and i'm like oh i dread when it's my turn <laughs> So, well, so I dread it, but I did okay. I no, did, no, that's I did, good. Did. That's good. <laughs> you did awesome, man. 
<laughs> Good job, man. All Paul, right. Paul, thanks it's so been, much. Take care, brother. It's been fun. Talk soon. All right. There you go. Take care. Oh, there he goes. Paul Russell. What a cool guy, man. What an awesome dude. I hope you guys enjoyed that. Uh, Far-ranging discussion, <laughs> for sure. And we didn't get to a bunch of stuff, and that's just the way it goes sometimes. Uh, I think that um, everyone should go to uh, Paul's Bandcamp, which we didn't even talk about that. Um, there's a one, so it's paulrossell1.bandcamp.com after it. I'll put it in the show notes so everyone can check it out. Uh, let's just hear. This is a first song on the turning of the bright world, and this is Elephant Man.
So there's Paul with Elephant Man. Go get that. That is on uh, that is on the Bandcamp, the Paul Russell one, Bandcamp.com. Again, it'll be in the show notes so you can find it. Or you can just use your Google Foo if you feel so inclined. Uh, turning in the bright world. Thanks so much for listening to the show. The name of the show is Code of New Transportonic Reversal. Appreciate you. Listen. You can find this show Rio.com. Streaming on YouTube and Twitch as well. <laughs> we got a double. <laughs> so nice they played it twice. Protonicreversal.com uh, for the archives. Always free. No ads. No kidding. But if you like the show and want to get episodes sooner, you can achieve that goal very easily. As we come to the close broadcast day. Give me $1 a month. Thanks, everyone, for sharing the episodes around. Liking, sharing, subscribing off is, is free. It's a, it's a free Mr. Show. and Mrs. America. And sharing around. Posting the review. That's who can find it. All that stuff helps people find the show. Anyone and, within uh, the sound of my voice. Thing to do. And, uh, you know, I appreciate everybody listening. There's going to be uh, next I've two weeks going to be off. I'm Music's 50,000 watts of power. We got some great stuff coming up. We got some rescheduled stuff that's coming up. Ionize the air. Please stay tuned to it. And yeah. Appreciate having you around. This microphone turns sound into electricity. Take care of yourself, everyone. Can you hear me now? Out on Route 128, dark and lonely. Check you later. I got my radio on. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now?
Welcome to my top ten. I'd like to thank our sponsor. But we haven't got a sponsor. Not if you were the last man on earth. She was prepared to prove it. This one goes out to a special girl. There is no special girl! It's the, it's the end of radio. The last announcer plays the last record. The last what? Leaves the transmitter. Circles the globe in search of a listener. Can you hear me now? broadcasting if there's no one there to receive it's the end of radio as we come to the close of our broadcast day See? <laughs>